following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in March 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the playwright, David Ives. David has had work just recently on Broadway, including Is He Dead?, the show that starred Norbert Leo Butts with the adaptation of the Mark Twain play, recently off-Broadway at uh, Classic Stage Company, New Jerusalem, a New York Philharmonic concert of My Fair Lady, the Carnegie Hall concert a couple of years ago, South Pacific, Irving Berlin's White Christmas. Uh, many of these are adaptations, but he has written his own work, including back in 1972, his first show that was performed at Circle Repertory Company here in New York, a show called Canvas, many other shows in between, including All in the Timing, an adaptation of uh, Jubilee, the Moss Hart uh, Cole Porter show, A Wonderful Town, which eventually did transfer to Broadway, and now his 21st uh, production at Encores at City Center here in New York. It will be 22 in May with the next City Center Encores, but currently a show which is now running this weekend, Juno, starring Victoria Clark. We welcome David Ives. David, welcome. Thank you very much. Let's talk about your long-running association with Encores. I think the best place to start, we play a lot of the cast recordings of Encores, and I frequently mention Encores on the air, but for those listeners who are not in New York, maybe just explain what City Center does and what Encores is, and that, that whole concept, then we'll get to the specifics. Encores uh, calls itself Classic American Musicals in Concert, and it it likes to focus on musicals that uh, either didn't get a fair shake the first time around or haven't been seen in decades in any in any major production, uh, neglected musicals, failed musicals that actually didn't deserve to fail, and uh, they're done in concert. There's a there's a sort of minimal set. The orchestra's on stage so that the accent is always on the music. And what that means is that since the actors are book in hand uh, with eight days of rehearsal as part of the the, the encores process and the, and the orchestra on stage, it means that the book needs to be significantly reduced uh, so that it truly is a concert. And so my job usually at encores is to take the book of the musical and... Um, and cut it by a quarter to a third. Uh, sometimes for older musicals, uh, especially those from the late 20s and early 30s, musicals that really no one has seen in, or heard in living memory, um, adaptation means something different. It, it often means taking a totally corrupt text, um, if, if one even exists, of the libretto, and finding a viable, producible version of that for a concert version of that musical. For example, last season we did a show called Face the Music, um, an Irving Berlin show with a book by Moss Hart, um, which had not been done since it first uh, showed in 1931. Fantastic musical, which actually prefigures the producers in its plot. It's a, it's a sort of lost Marx Brothers musical as written by Moss Hart. And what they had was no finished production version of the script. They had several versions along the way, not all of them complete. And so we also, there, was, there were also songs cut on the road in that show, and very good songs, good Berlin songs. And so I was given the task of putting together Face the Music as it might have been. And so I had to take those versions of the script and concoct something which represented the play 
pretty much as I expected it would have been, but also reincorporating the songs that were cut on the road. And we didn't always know where those went. And so I had to find a place for them and justify their, their place in the, in, in the musical. So the older musicals sometimes need that kind of work. Um, newer musicals, for example, we did Applause this year at Encores. Um, Applause is a, is a finished book. It's, it's a musical that people remember and know. And so that, that show really took only reducing it by, I would say, a third. How did you develop this specialty of working on other people's scripts to varying degrees? It, uh, it's actually been the greatest education I can imagine as a playwright. Um, and it didn't cost me $20,000 the way Yale Drama School did either. Um, <laughs> so uh, the way it happened was quite by accident. Um, in 1994, Walter Bobby, who was then the artistic director of, of Encores, called me up and he said, there is a Cole Porter musical called Out of This World. It failed in 1951. We don't have a finished uh, script of it. We have what seems to be a stage manager's copy. We seem to have a first draft. We seem to have a rewrite. But we don't know what this script was because actually in those days, even though it was by Cole Porter, when the show was over, if it failed, they, they, tossed, they tossed it out. It wasn't, it wasn't thought to be a great American musical. It was a failed musical. And so the pit musicians left their parts in the, in the pit on the final performance. If they were lucky, somebody collected them and put them into some file drawer in the producer's office. And possibly the stage manager kept a copy of the script. So my job on that first Encores musical was really to take the three drafts that I had of um, out of this world and put together... Um, again, a viable a, a viable script that could be used on stage at City Center. In in this case, George Abbott directed Out of This World, and he cut from this moment on out of town when they were in Boston. Unbelievable, mm-hmm. but it's true. And so I had to figure out a way to put from this moment on back into the show along with a couple of other songs. And so my very first experience at Encores was really a reconstruction um, on that order. And Every show at Encores demands something quite different. Um, sometimes a show will be incredibly prop-heavy, like um, Wonderful Town. Wonderful Town, a fantastic musical, um, is also a domestic musical. It takes place mostly in an apartment. People have to do things like iron and things, and it's very hard to iron when you've got a script in your hand. And so a lot of my work on that show was simply finding ways that it could be done without without props in hand. And so it is an extraordinary job every time it comes around of um, finding what this particular musical needs in order to be put on stage at Encores. We're doing No, No, Nanette coming up uh, as the last show of the the season. And No, No, Nanette is a show from 1925, but we're doing the 1973 version of it, which was adapted by Bert Shevelov. So I'm actually adapting an adaptation in that case. And even though Bert Shevelov, who was extraordinary, cut down the 1925 version and made it a very streamlined machine, for encores, it still wasn't quite streamlined enough because uh, an eight-page scene in a concert version feels like 12 pages. And so even Bert Shevelov's adaptation needed to be somewhat trimmed down. Well, you mentioned two shows, Wonderful Town and Applause, both with books by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Right. When you did Wonderful Town, Betty Comden was still alive. When you did Applause this year, she had already passed away. Right. When the, you have a case of a living 
playwright who wrote the original book. Do you mm-hmm. consult with them? Do you, do, you, do you work at all with them? Actually, I was a very good friend of, of Adolph Green, and he uh-huh. was around. I also did Do Re Mi, which was uh-huh. Comden and Green. And I can tell you that when I told Adolph that, that Encores wanted to do Do Re Mi, he, he put his hand up and said, no, don't do it. <laughs> and then uh, he, he, having seen the production, realized that actually by going back to it and trimming it down and taking out some of the, some of the fat, it ended up being a wonderfully entertaining musical. And so that was the first one that I, I, I did, I believe. And he and Betty just trusted me to to do what I did best, and so I never really consulted with them. They were always very happy with what I did, um, and so no, I never I never really had to uh, had to uh, had to ask for their their help or their guidance. In fact, um, we're doing Juno right now, and Joe Stein is still with us. He's ninety five years old. It's it's extraordinary, and. So he came to the first read through, and I had I had cut Juno probably by a quarter, and um, he said, "Sounds good." So mm-hmm. that's that's the way it goes. How much is the job cutting? How much is it rearranging? How much of it is writing additional material? It it differs from show to show, but. Um, I would say that any musical from 1960 onwards is is a cutting job because those those are established books. Um, right around that time, I think people became more aware of hanging on to things, or maybe it's just that not enough time has passed for those things to be thrown out. But um, if they could throw out a Cole Porter musical in 1951, you get a sense of just how perishable these things were. They're, they became less perishable in the 60s. So... Anything that I did before um, before then was took a lot of reconstruction. For example, um, I worked on Dubarry Was a Lady, which was another Cole Porter show from 1938, which was actually a vehicle for Ethel Merman and Bert Lahr. And that was, I think, my second show at Encores. And the extraordinary thing about that show was that because it was a vehicle for Bert Lahr, I came across stage directions that said he does the sneezing routine. He does the he does the brushing routine, and so I had to come up with with things that that no one has seen in living memory, and insert a bit that Bert Lahr had probably been doing in his vaudeville act for years and years and years because people went to see Dubarry was a lady to see him do the brushing routine or see him do the sneezing routine, but nobody's recorded that, so I had to reconstruct. Uh, what I could out of that, in the same sense that there's a doctor routine in there, and I had to construct a doctor a doctor sketch in the middle of the of the last act. And uh, when we did Pardon My English, Pardon My English, uh, which was a Gershwin show uh, with a book by Maury Riskind, who who wrote for the Marx Brothers, um, Pardon My English only existed in Maury Riskin's first draft. There were no songs in the in the script. You could see where Ira Gershwin had taken a patch of dialogue and and written a song out of it, but I had 150 single-spaced pages of Maury Riskin's stream of consciousness. It was like Anne Olivia Pluribel from Finnegan's Wake or Molly Bloom's soliloquy from Ulysses in the form of a musical. And so in that case, because we had... We knew that there were songs included in that show that had, no, and we had no idea where they were in the script. I had to more or less find a place 
for them. And so there was a bit of writing that went into into that particular show where I had to actually write something that would introduce a song that we knew was in the show but was not in that first draft. Sounds like a combination of both detective work and imagination. It is. I call it literary ventriloquism because <laughs> you have to you have to figure out the voice of whoever wrote the book and the voice of the characters in the book and and sort of do patching and filling so that nobody can tell the difference. And that's why I say it's such an extraordinary education as a playwright because basically you are getting to put your hands in the work of some really wonderful writers. I mean, Moss Hart and, and, and the Gershwins and so on, and figuring out how they worked and what they, what they wanted out of this show and kind of completing what they began 50 or 60 years ago. Well, many of the shows were written in the 1930s, the shows that right, of course yes. does, and they were not known to be terrific book shows. They were more, you know, no. just stringing together a bunch of musical numbers. Right. So now here we are in the 21st century. One of the challenges of adapting an older show like that in terms of audiences that are not accustomed to that style, that, that are accustomed to a totally different type of musical now. Well, you have to, you have to really take that into account a bit because... Um, for example, musicals of the 20s and 30s weren't constructed musically the way they are now. For example, they, sometimes the first act just ends. So, um, even The Boys from Syracuse basically ends with just a scene. And so we had to find a way to musicalize the end of it because an audience now does not, wouldn't understand the curtain falling on no music. And so uh, we're also not used to... Um, <clears throat> to um, Finalettos, you know, because Gilbert and Sullivan were so were so big in the in, for example, Ira, Ira and George Gershwin's book that they're of the I sing. Each of the acts ends with a finaletto or or a, or a sung finale, and so you have to find ways to incorporate that so that it all looks organic. You really do have to both please an audience of today and. And reflect what the what the uh, what the tastes of the time were, and and um, so it, it it is a bit of back and forth thing. But without without prostituting the original musical, you know, you want to give people the sense that they have seen "Pardon My English" or "Face the Music." So that does sometimes mean some juggling. In "Face the Music," for example, it did partly represent that sort of old musical that is in which each scene is a, is a, is a comic sketch. On the other hand, there is a very strong pl plot line that begins in the first act, but he lets he lets certain characters just be forgotten in the middle of the second act. But I found in earlier versions of it scenes with those characters, so I put those scenes back in with the song, with a song that could have gone with it from that show, and um, sort of reconstructed that way. Of course, we're talking about musicals here, so how do you coordinate with the musical director and the, and the director himself of the show? There's herself? usually a lot, of, a lot of talk before the... If we're, if we're working on a very old show like that, um, usually I spend an afternoon talking to the music director about the nature of what's left for, of the music. Sometimes music needs to be reorchestrated um, uh, because it's only in a piano version, or sometimes... Uh, if it was cut on the road, it doesn't exist in the orchestrations that were done by the, the orchestrator for the show. And so I usually spend an afternoon talking about what is there. Um, what what I usually have the, the music director play through it so that I can hear what these songs are like and, and, 
and get a sense of what the show is that way. And what if there are songs that are missing from the script that were cut, for example, or or moved around, which is also often the case, where they where they belong, what the music director's wisdom is on these on these questions. And so then I plunge in and usually I'm I'm sort of left left by myself until I come up with a script. And then at that point the music director jumps back in probably with an assistant to make sure that the lyrics are, are as they should be, that the song is complete. Um, but I've never, having put a song back into a show in any way, I've, I've never seen it moved again or cut out. It always seems to work that way. Encores has been extraordinarily successful and indeed influential. We've seen other series like this crop up in other cities. But I'm wondering, after 20 shows, it's not including Juno right now, that you've uh, worked on, has there ever been a show that resisted resurrection? Well, uh, DuBerry was a lady, resisted resurrection, partly because I think it was my second show at Encores, and I didn't really know how to how to take this kind of grab bag of, of sketches and and extended scenes and make it into a viable uh, musical. But I think if I went back to that one, I would, I would know how to do it. Um, other than that, I, I have to say that they've been, they've been, the musicals have gone along with me pretty well. I, I, um, I, I don't, I think that there are some that that for other reasons didn't succeed, miscasting uh, uh, possibly um, didn't work. But in general, I, uh, I feel that they've, they've gone pretty well. Well, moving beyond encores to other work that you've been involved with, I mentioned in the introduction a show that just closed recently that you, in effect, collaborated with Mark Twain. The show, <laughs> Is He Dead, was written by... Twain, roughly 100 years ago, right. was never produced on a stage. And tell us a story about how that came to life. And you were working from the original manuscript and all that. Um, Is He Dead was a, uh, a play that Twain wrote in 1898 in one of the darkest periods of his life. Um, he was bankrupt. He was in Vienna, and his, and his beloved daughter had just died. And so he was in a profound depression. And um, he actually thought which only goes to show how desperate playwrights can be. He actually thought that he could write a play and make money off of it. And so that's why he wrote Is He Dead? It's, uh, he was capitalizing on the, um, the, 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 the big hit of the time, uh, Charlie's Aunt, which was a, a cross-dressing comedy, English cross-dressing comedy, very popular a few years before that. And so he wrote this, <clears throat> he wrote this play, and it was supposed to be produced in London by Bram Stoker, who was who owned one of the theaters? I'm not sure which, the St. James or the one of them, and um, or managed it, I should say. But before the play could be put up, uh, a warehouse burned down with all of the costumes and sets for the theater, and Stoker then was bankrupt, so the play was off. And Twain threw threw this play, still in manuscript, into a drawer, where it stayed uh, until 2002 or three when a, uh, a Twain scholar named Professor Shelley Fisher Fishkin of Stanford found it in a filing cabinet and thought it was funny. And a friend of hers, a New York producer named Bob Boyette, who is a wonderful, not only producer, but patron of the American theater, really. And he read it after it had been published by University of California Press. And he called me up one day and he said, there's this undiscovered Mark Twain play it's never been done. It 
could use some help. Would you read it and see if you'd like to help out Mark Twain? And you don't get this offer every day, you know, the chance to collaborate with the truly dead Mark Twain. And um, so I read it, and I thought it was an extraordinary um, extraordinary play in its possibilities. Um, Twain not being a playwright kind of wasn't terribly practical. It takes 30 people to do the original Twain play. It's in three acts, and you can't do three acts anymore. It has to be two acts. And But the germ of it, the, 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 the central idea of it was so funny that I said I would love to work on it. And here's the central idea. There is a it, the main character is a painter named Jean Francois Millet, who was a, an actual painter uh, of the 19th century, hugely successful in Twain's time. His uh, Millet's prices were going through the roof when when Twain wrote this play, so he was partly capitalizing on the fame of Millet. And um, what happens in the play is that Millet is in debt to a picture dealer. Uh, Millet's fiancé's father is also in debt to the picture dealer, and the picture dealer forecloses and says, if you don't pay me, I'm going to put you in jail, unless Marie, the love interest in the play, marries me. So Millet and his artist friends decide that the only way he's ever going to get out of debt and reach fame and fortune is to die, because the only way that a painter ever makes any money and reaches fame is to be dead. And so he and his friends concoct this plot whereby they will fake his death and he will come back as his own widowed sister. That, needless to say, gets him into a lot of trouble. And uh, the second, in the, in the, by the second act of the play, he is living as a rich widow, his own rich widowed sister in Paris, and has to somehow find his way out of drag and, and back into the arms of his fiancée. He's also being courted by the picture dealer who wants to marry him, her, I should say, for her money. And so it's a, it's a farce. It's, um, it's lots of opening and closing doors and people running in and out. And, um, and working with Twain, I must say, was a great pleasure, except for the cigars. They were, they were really a pain. <laughs> but was this another case of literary ventriloquism? Uh, very much, because I I thought that my job was not to write a new play based on what Twain had begun, but to complete what he would have done if he'd had 97 years to think about this play and a few more plays under his belt. Um, but yes, it was it was a great big it was a great big job, and and I must say that there's a lot of me in the play as it was done on Broadway because there was a lot of reconstruction, especially in the last act that needed to be done because. Twain introduced all these characters and then he kind of forgot about them. And the his last act, which is basically the last act as it was on Broadway as well, consisted of three or four big scenes. But all of the, the minor characters who'd been in the first act were sort of out of the picture. And so I created a couple of subplots that could bring them back in and run, run alongside the main plot. So I, I sort of took the beginnings of the farce that he created and completed it. In a recent um, online article about the show, you wrote, I'm going to read directly, Mark Twain told us, no, he showed us how we Americans talk. Twain gave us a model of how to write prose that is as direct and fresh as well, fresh direct. So explain a little bit how you got to know Mark Twain and how you then worked in his style to adapt the show. Um, basically by reading the play over and over and over again, his original text, I mean. When Bob Boyette called me up and, and asked me if I would be interested in working on this play, I um, I had just returned the day before from a vacation in the Adirondacks. 
where I had, by a strange coincidence, taken Mark Twain to read as my as my summer reading material, and so I had just reread Huckleberry Finn and uh, the Man Who Corrupted Hadleyburg, and so I had Twain's voice in my head, and then suddenly there was Bob Boyette on the phone to me, saying, "Would you like to collaborate with Mark Twain on a play?" So. I was sort. Of, I sort of had a, uh, a foot up uh, in that way, having just finished lots and lots of Twain on vacation, and um, so when when he sent me the play and I and I agreed to work on it, I I basically read it over and over and over again and took a lot of notes about what I thought would work, what I should keep, what I should cut, what needed developing, and who were the basic characters that I wanted to to focus on. And once I knew that. Then I just had to get their voices in my head and kind of write onwards with them. Well, we'll come back around to all of your work this season, but it strikes me that we've now been talking for 25 minutes, and you're enormously self-effacing, and we're talking about you putting yourself in the shoes of other writers. I'm curious to ask how you first came to playwriting. And we, John mentioned, you know, a play at Circle Rep in 1972. That was very prestigious. Well, I... I wrote my first play when I was 10, when I was in the Cub Scouts. So it was a long way, a circle rep for you. a long way. It was 12 long years to, to there. Um, I, uh, when I was 10, I was, I was in the Cub Scouts, and I decided that I was going, to, uh, I was going to, uh, to write a play for my Cub Scout den. And um, uh, I, I took a 300-page sort of noir thriller from my parents' library that I that I adored called Mr. Strang, and I turned it into a play that I could perform with four other guys from my Cub Scout den. And it was a, it was a good 300 pages that I turned into, I would say, 10 pages of, of dialogue. <laughs> and what I didn't know about playwriting being 10 years old was that everybody is supposed to get a copy of the script. You see, I learned my lines, and then I passed the script on to the next guy, and he lost the script. So this is so I started my career with a lost manuscript. Um, probably my best work, too. I think it may be the most brilliant thing. And a foreshadowing thing of, of, of what the later work. Yes, short play, quick and dirty. Um, but I, uh, uh, having done my best work early, I, I, I continued to soldier on. But I wrote plays during... I was very smitten. I uh, I went to the theater in high school and was was writing plays in high school, was writing plays in college at Northwestern. I had a couple of them done. Naturally, I starred in them. I mean, what else does one do in college but star in one's own plays? Deep existential, you know, dramas about um death and and you know, the the meaninglessness of the universe. Um as I was finishing at Northwestern, um I had one stroke of good fortune, I suppose, which was that I had just read a book of criticism by John Lahr, who is actually now the drama critic of The New Yorker, but who was then starting out, he was writing for, I think, the Evergreen Review or something. And he was he was even then a wonderful critic. And I wrote to him naively out of the, out of the blue, and I said, uh, I'm a student at Northwestern. I've written this play that people think is pretty good, but I don't know what to do with it. And he wrote me back and he said, send it to this man who's got a Rockefeller grant to produce new plays and see what he says. And so I sent it and the man wrote me back and he said, I found a theater in Los Angeles that wants to do your play. Hmm. And so um, I was suddenly playwright. I was 21 years old. I was playwright in residence at a theater in Los Angeles. It was a... When I say theater, what I mean is it was a storefront with a pole in the middle of the stage so that you couldn't the, – the, every, every seat was obstructed viewing in that theater. Um, 
but that was so there I was with with a play on and somehow there was a director from New York who was in the audience having his view obstructed one night and he saw the play and he liked it and he said um, I'd like to take this to Marshall Mason at Circle Rep which he did and he called me up and he's, I was then in Los Angeles because I was playwright in residence there and he said Marshall wants to do the play at the Circle so I said great and so that was kind of how I stumbled into the Circle Rep it was also the lead in that play was uh, Jonathan Hogan who is now of course an established actor of the New York stage and in film and television it was his first role in New York as I understand he was a bicycle messenger or something and at he that became point. quite a staple at Circle Rep yes he, he did the, he became one of their one of their one of their the members of the big members of their company and so that was really how that happened it was quite by accident which which is why I have after all of these years in the theater, no wisdom about how the theater works because essentially everything has been an accident. You know, when people ask me, how do you get an agent? I don't know because I got my agents by accident all, all, along the way. And um, it's I guess the theater is just something you have to live through rather than learn anything about. But that's how that happened. And then having done that first play, they did my second play, which was a deep uh, comic Fantasia fantasy about Freud called Saint Freud, which uh, just to show you how naive I was at 25, took a cast of 22 playing 55 parts, and I didn't think that that was odd, but they they produced it anyway. It was Christine Lottie's first job in New York, as I remember. It was, and the first play was done at the old 83rd Street. Um, this was down in Sheridan Square. Having having done those two plays, I didn't quite. I didn't quite know where to go from there. I became an editor at Foreign Affairs magazine for three years, which was which were very happy, and it was a wonderful job, but it wasn't enough. I was still staying up till four in the morning writing plays, and so I decided... I had sworn that if, by the time I turned 30, I wasn't doing... If I wasn't living the life that I, sh that I thought I should be living, I would take whatever means necessary to do it. And so... At the time, a girlfriend of mine said to me, well, why don't you go to Yale Drama School? And I thought, well, there's an idea. And so I applied to Yale and I got in. And and so it was just kind of stumbling through. And so at 30, there I was going to Yale Drama School. And um, so I, I, what I wanted to do was go immensely into debt and have a lot of time to write plays, which I did for three years. Coming out the other side, had your playwriting changed and what what opportunities or what accidents came your way? For a long time, I I was writing these large, serious, complicated, rather fantastic plays. And sometime in the late 80s, and I don't really remember why, I started writing short comedies. And um, there was a place in Manhattan at the time called the Manhattan Punchline. It was a, it was a tiny place on, on West 42nd Street. It was fundamentally a Xerox machine and an artistic director. Uh, an artistic director named Steve Kaplan who was having a perpetual nervous breakdown. Uh, maybe because so was the Xerox machine. But that was basically what the theater was. And every year the Manhattan Punchline put on a festival of one-act plays. Three evenings of short comedies. These, these little plays... Uh, were plays that the Times came and reviewed every year, and so it was. It had a little bit of visibility, and I, I, for whatever reasons, had begun writing these short comedies. And I, I remember giving him my first short comedy play called Words, 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 which, which is, which basically uh, goes on the old proverb that three monkeys typing into infinity will, will 
at some point produce Hamlet. And my play was about what the monkeys talk about while they are trying to come up with Hamlet. Which And they don't know what Hamlet is, of course. But in any case, it was done at the punchline. It got some attention. And so I had this yearly gig where I did one and sometimes two one-act plays. And and I realized that I had a facility for these things. It was almost, I had sort of stumbled into this area and had a wonderful director at the time who knew how to direct them, which is a very valuable thing. I started accumulating actors who knew how to speak my words the way they were meant to be spoken. And so it was it was really a wonderful way to be out in the public with with my work. And so I accumulated enough of them that ultimately some of them were done as All in the Timing, which ran for two two years off Broadway. And I, I seem to have this 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 name as a writer of short comedies. When you say short comedies, some of them were very short, like 15 minutes, very short plays. No, right? 15 minutes is long. For a short play. <laughs> um, I wrote a play called Philip Glass Buys a Loaf of Bread, which actually used to clock in at 5 minutes and 38 seconds. Right. Um, on, on really fast nights, it clocked in at 5 minutes and 17 seconds. And it was, it was a spoof of, of Philip Glass spoken in rhythm by four actors. I remember that... Uh, when I uh, when I brought that play to Steve Kaplan, the head of the Manhattan Punchline, I, I I was in the office with the Xerox machine. He was having his breakdown, and I handed him the script and I said, I, I, "Steve, I wrote this new uh, comedy for the for the festival." And he he took the, the the manuscript in his hand and he's and he read, "Philip Glass buys a loaf of bread." Good, I'll produce it. And he put it down on his desk. And I said, well, don't you want to read the play? He said, no, 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 I like the title, I'll produce it. And so that was how that play got produced. If he had opened it and seen that it was written in rhythm, I don't think he would have produced it. But luckily for me, he was busy that day and he liked the title, so it got put on. And later went to, it was done at Lincoln Center in their, in their, their old festival, what was that called? Uh, Serious Fun was done there and uh, got done in Vienna. And so this little five-minute play um, somehow found its way around. Now, why did you write the show so short? Is that all that you could sustain the concept? or? Yeah, every one of those plays is a, is a little idea. Uh-huh. And, and the length of the play always depended on, on how, how much I could ravel out the idea. For example, I have a play called um, – one of the short plays was called Variations on the Death of Trotsky – which um, that play was born because I read an article in the New York Times one day that that told me that Trotsky, having been hit by a mountain climber's axe by his assassin, lived on for 36 hours. And so I pondered what one does for 36 hours with a mountain climber's axe in one's head and, and wrote this little comedy. And so it's basically what happens from the moment he realizes he's been hit with a mountain climber's axe to his death. And so you can't, that's not a full-length play. It's a it's a it's a meditation on on mortality. And so, at eleven minutes, that was just about right. I'd say. What is the difference between a short comedy, a one-act play, and a sketch? Well, I think that uh, the difference the difference lies in um, in a simple factor, which is pain. Um, I I think the difference between a sketch in a play, no matter how long the play is, is actually the entrance of human pain. Um, a sketch literally skates on the surface of a comic idea. But, for example, a man contemplating his mortality, even in the midst of a comedy, 
lays in a sort of substructure of meaning which goes deeper than a joke. Uh, sketches really play out a joke. A play has a substratum of human emotion. It can be love, which is automatically painful, I suppose. Um, death, it, or in the case of Philip Glass, the Philip Glass, the Philip Glass play, for example, is all about loss, the loss of love. But you, if you never say that, but it's written into it, the play becomes richer. Because uh, for me, the the short play, uh, which I I had time to to learn in some depth. The short play is is as different in kind from a long play as a sonnet is from from a longer poem. And for me, a short play is really a poem. It is an image that, if you write a, if you write a very good short play, it provides you with an image that you will that will stick in your head. It's like a burr. And so, sketches don't st- stick. Sketches sketches are here and gone. They're you know they're leaves blowing in the wind. But but a good a good short play surprises you and stays with you in in some sense. And so I've uh, I have I have said that um, a long play is like is like B fifty two's carpet bombing a city, whereas a short play is a single gun in the hand of a lone assassin. I find it an incredibly difficult form because it has to be so concentrated and. Um, I also have a theory about the the one act play because oddly enough the one act play is a 20th century form. It is you, you will find very few short plays. You'll find a lot of, you know, vaudeville sketches before before the 20th century, but the one act play really came in with Eugene O'Neill. And for me the the 20th century was about anxiety and it was about loss and it is a, it it's a, it and the 20th century was about um concentration of uh, everything got smaller in the 20th century at the same time that it got more powerful it's like the atom bomb was was smaller than some of the bigger bombs of the of the of the second world war but it packed more power and so the the kind of feeling of deprivation of the 20th century worked itself into what I think of as as a supremely existential form, the one-act play, which is usually, when you think of a one-act play, you think of a man on stage with a park bench or two people on stage with a street lamp. And there is an implicit, stripped-down existential loneliness to the one-act play, even to comic one-act plays. And that, to me, is an extraordinary poetic opportunity for a writer. We had one uh, well-known playwright recently on this program who said that most of his plays that he's written are five minutes too long. You ever <laughs> wonder if yours are five minutes too short? Do you ever wish you had done a little bit more in some of the shows? Uh, I, <laughs> I, Just the opposite. I, uh, I, I sometimes think they're one line or two lines too long. I, I, they're short. They're I short. Too, short. <laughs> <laughs> too long would be five minutes and 23 yes, seconds. Yes, right? yes, yeah. yes. I, but, um, uh, for, you know, playwriting... The minute you get superfluous in playwriting, you can feel it, you know, you, because you can feel the audience shifting in its seats. And that's true whether you're writing a 15-minute play or a, or a two-hour play. And so that you, have to, you, have to, you have to have this invisible ball being thrown amongst the, the members of the cast and keep it as much in, aloft in the air as you can. And you can feel when it, when it hits the floor. 
You talked about Is He Dead being more than 30 characters as written. You'd cut it down to 11. You talked about a show you had written being 22 characters playing 55 different parts. Mm -hmm. With experience over the years, do you now think in terms of producibility, if that's a word, how do you produce a show like that? How do you produce a show that's 5 minutes and 38 seconds? Do you think in those Mm -hmm. terms now, or did you ever think in those terms? Ultimately, you have to you have to think in those terms. I mean, you you can write. Ultimately, you you have to write whatever you need to write. And if you and if you have in you a play that demands to be gotten out, and it's the year two thousand eight, and it takes twenty two people and fifty five characters, write the play, and it will find its way to production if it's a good play. I, I firmly believe that. But in America, it's very hard. For example, the, you know, there's no place really to do a. a a one-act comedy anymore. The Manhattan Punchline ultimately closed down in the in the '90s and and deprived me of a of a of a platform for these plays. And so I kind of haven't been writing very many of them because I don't have a place to do them. And you you ultimately do have to consider producibility, but not in the first not in the first moments of sitting down to write. Ultimately, you'll write whatever you need to. But yes, um, you you have to take it into account at some point. Did the success of the one act, certainly of of all in the timing and, and subsequent anthologies of your plays, did did that become did that pigeonhole you and did you then have to get people to to look at you again as a full length playwright? I, I have to say it did pigeonhole me and uh I remember that uh, you know, the, several of those plays have bells in them. Sure Thing has a bell in it. Variations on the Death of Trotsky has a bell in it. And I remember that I was, I once ran into Stephen Sondheim and he introduced me to somebody and he said, this is David Ives. He writes the plays with the bells. And at that moment, Stephen Sondheim, without knowing it, changed my career because I decided I'm never going to write another play with a bell in it, ever. Hmm. If Because I don't want to be known as the playwright who writes plays with the bells. I want to be known as David Ives, the playwright, period. And so I, I did certainly get pigeonholed, and I get approached by a lot of people who who expect me to write a certain way. But what what people don't realize is that every one of those one act plays is a very different play. And so the minute that I sit down and, and realize that the play I'm working on is a play I've already written or 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 covers the same territory, I just stop writing it because I I don't like to repeat myself. I have to ask, as we were researching this, I came across the fact that you worked on a David Copperfield Broadway show, The Magician. Yes, I, I adapted Dreams and Nightmares for, for Broadway. It, it was on Broadway in 1999, I think, or I'm not quite sure. We have it, it a little on. earlier. It's 96. 96, but, yes, well. <laughs> but what is writing for a magician like? Um, well, in that case, David... David was looking for someone to take his show, which he'd been taking around the world and doing in Las Vegas. He wanted to come to Broadway with it. And I kind of advised him more than wrote for him. I took the things that he was doing and and told him what I thought would strengthen it, what I thought would give a backbone to the to the evening. Actually, Francis Ford Coppola was, was the artistic advisor on that show, and he too weighed in. And... Um, and Aiko did the sets for the for that show, so it was quite a it was quite a lineup of people. But we kind of advised him on how to take his show and make and give it a give it uh, a spine, give it give it. Uh, I hate to use the word arc uh, in the evening to improve some of the some of the storytelling, 
to to move make better transitions between the tricks and his talk and the music and so on and so it was quite fun i i i loved working working on that show hmm. You've done a couple adaptations of very well-known shows, uh, South Pacific, which the, the book of that show was written by Oscar Hammerstein based on the novel by James Michener, right. uh, My Fair Lady, which, of course, Alan J. Lerner wrote based on George Bernard Shaw's play, uh, Pygmalion. When you're adapting well-known works like that, now those were uh, you know, concert performances, right. is that similar to the encores or are there other challenges in adapting those? Um, both, of those both of those jobs demanded... Um, Basically, trimming trimming those those books because the for example, South Pacific was at Carnegie Hall with Reba McIntyre. Again, it was book in hand. There was no chance to have props, and it's it's a it's a show that's got a number of props. It's a show that's got a very book heavy second act, and so it was finding a way. For example, to take a, there's a a scene in the second act of South Pacific that I would say is twelve pages long. It's when they're they're dealing with the plot of the. Of the uh, of trying to um, uh, spy on the on the Japanese, and it is a long scene, only with transitional music. And I found a way to kind of summarize that scene, keeping the keeping as much of the music as we could, which was the the accent of the of the concert. And I think I brought that down to just a page and a half of of dialogue. My Fair Lady was a was a very interesting proposition because it is, of course, a perfect musical. And when I first and when I was approached by Rob Fisher, the music director, to adapt it. I read it and I said, it can't be adapted because you can't cut anything from this. It's too perfect. And he said, well, keep looking and see what, because it's going to be long. It's actually a very long musical. It's, you know, it's good, as as all musicals were in those days, it was three hours. And um, so actually, when I picked up a pencil and sat down with it, I found that I could take out half an hour. And it's interesting, nobody noticed that the book had been cut. And so, um, which which is the best possible compliment that can be paid to whatever I to whatever I do, because um, it was a matter of just finding those little snips here and there that that actually took half an hour out of the out of that show. How about in terms of working with the rights holders, the the estates that own these very valuable properties, kind of the crown jewels of, of the, the various estates? Do you have to work with them and and clear everything through the? Well, they, there's there's always an agreement with with the estates that they will not have that they agree that the book will be adapted and that they have no say in how it is adapted. Mm-hmm. Luckily for me, I've done this so often for so many different kinds of things that uh, I guess people kind of trust me with it, and so um, I get I get a very free hand. I've never I've never run into a rights holder who squawked. We've, we've spoken about editing, we've spoken about trimming, we've spoken about adapting. You've also worked on translations, plays that, that certainly have worked in their native language, uh, and but then are brought into English. You did uh, A Flea in Her Ear for Chicago Shakespeare, more recently here in New York at CSC, uh, Yasmina Reza's A Spanish Play. Is that, again, a different discipline, or is it is it more the same work? No, translation I I found is is quite a different bag, and and I've enjoyed it. Um, the Yasmina Reza play kind of was was dropped into my lap because Classic Stage wanted to put the play on, and they had a translation that didn't work, and so they uh, they came to me and they said we have to we have to start rehearsals quite soon on this. Could you go back to this and do it again? And so. Uh, 
my fr- I have I have good reading French. I don't have great speaking French, and so. I read the play and I thought it was absolutely fascinating and I said I'd love to. It was also John Turturro directing and Zoe Caldwell in the cast and Dennis O'Hare, Linda Eamond. It was an extraordinary cast. Larry and they were Pond. all committed at the point they were at all which committed. they came to you. They were all committed. And so uh, you don't get that chance every day. And I, I was at Yale Drama School with John Turturro who actually was in a play of mine there and so we knew each other somewhat. And um, – I did it partly to be to be in the room with those people and be in the room with Yasmina Reza as well. And so um, it was a very difficult play because it takes place on three different levels of reality. And, and so I had to I had to investigate, first of all, in translating that play, what what she was intending with the play as a whole. In other words, I had to I had to sort of comprehend the play the way a playwright would comprehend it, not the way a translator would. So that the translation job was actually a job of making the meaning of the play clear. Not the meaning of the play, but the, the making what she had intended in her mind clear to an audience in English. And so it was it was a job of interpretation. Uh, and I don't mean linguistic interpretation first. I mean interpreting her intentions. Fleener Ear is, of course, a different story because Fedot, God bless him, is dead. And so I, I had a very free hand in Fedot, and I actually added a sub-sub-subplot to that farce, which I hid away into a little corner to complete a sub-sub-subplot that he began. Speaking of a classic stage company, you wrote a show, original show, that just played a couple months ago earlier this year in New York at Classic Stage called New Jerusalem, which is set about 350 years ago about the Jewish philosopher Spinoza and some very uh, interesting and challenging philosophical ideas, which were probably, I'm guessing, kind of hard to translate onto, onto the stage to be able to express what the man thought. Great fun, though. Great uh-huh. fun. Great fun to dig into the meaning of life, at, mm-hmm. uh, however you can. Um, actually, the, the the full title of that play is um, I don't have it in front of me, but let me try to quote myself from memory: "New Jerusalem, the interrogation of Baruch de Spinoza at t- at Talmud Torah Congregation, Amsterdam, July twenty seventh, sixteen fifty six, which tells you kind of what what the the setting and date of the of the play is." Um, what happened with that play was that years ago at Yale Drama School, I read Spinoza, and I don't remember why I read Spinoza, but I picked I picked him up maybe because I thought I should know what he'd written, and I became fascinated by him, even though I didn't understand him. It's very dense, Spinoza, but I would read two or three pages a day and try to try to take it in, and I felt I was in the presence of somebody really extraordinary. And then about two years ago, I read somewhere that someone asked Einstein in his old age if he believed in God. And Einstein's answer was, I believe in Spinoza's God. And I wanted to know what that meant. And so I I went back and I started reading up on Spinoza. And as I read more and more and reacquainted myself with him, I realized that there was an extraordinary play here. Because essentially, Spinoza was put on trial at his own synagogue in 1656. He was 23 years old. It was expected that he would become the rabbi of his synagogue because he was sort of the the bright young man. He was the he was the student of the chief rabbi of Amsterdam. He seemed to be headed to become the chief rabbi of Amsterdam himself. But rumors got around Amsterdam that Spinoza held heretical ideas, and he was summoned to his synagogue one day, 
to answer some questions. And nobody knows what was said in the synagogue that day, but whatever was said in the synagogue, it resulted in him being expelled from the Jewish people forever with the harshest writ of excommunication in the history of the of the Jews of Amsterdam. And so the play was my attempt to imagine what could have possibly been said inside that synagogue among all the people who would have been involved in that day. And so um, I read up on Spinoza, read a, a lot of books, took pages and pages of notes, and then when I sat down and wrote that play in about 10 days, I would say. But it was also not only uh, about philosophy, it's also about theology. And as I understand it, you are not Jewish yourself. No. Did you have to do extra research into that to be sure that you were both historically accurate and also theologically accurate? Well, I, uh, my wife is Jewish. I suppose that makes me, uh, <laughs> I'm honorary. Uh, I'm an honorary member of the, of the Jewish community. I in reading up on Spinoza, I gleaned enough, I think, to to be factually correct. Also, um, the two heads of Classic Stage Company are Brian Kulik and Jessica Jenin, both of whom are Jewish, and they, and seriously, you know, uh, um, observant. And so they, the play passed their passed their eyes without. They didn't object to anything that was in the play or, or think that it was factually inaccurate. And also we had we had a bunch of Spinoza scholars come, mostly Jewish, to talk about the play after the Sunday matinees and, and they never they never ran up a red flag or took out a gun or threatened my life or anything. So I guess it, it passed the, the factual test. Well, as we started this uh, this program, we talked about your adaptations at uh, City Center. Uh, Juno is now running and No, No, Nanette in May. What are you doing in the future now beyond uh, Encores? My translation of Flea and Rear will be at the Williamstown Festival in, in, this summer, directed by John Rando. Um, I have a new young adult novel coming out called Voss, How I Come to America and Am Hero Mostly, coming out in the fall. It's about an immigrant kid from Slobovia who, who smuggles himself into America in a freight container and has a bunch of adventures here. That's my third young adult novel. And... Um, and I have a reading of a of a new play of mine next week, actually. Private reading, I mean. A bunch of actors sitting around a table to let me hear it. Earlier this afternoon, I ran into your frequent collaborator, Walter Bobby, and mentioned that we were going to be speaking. And I said, what should I ask him about? And he said, well, I don't know, but isn't it amazing the new direction that David is going in? Do you see yourself going in a new direction, or is that just Walter's perception? Um well, I, I would trust Walter about me more than I would trust me about me. But if if he says I'm going in a new direction and that he's excited about it, I'm 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 very pleased. I I'm always trying to go in, in a new direction. I I hate repeating myself, and it's it can be the bane of a career in the theater actually, because branding is everything these days. And if you write short comedies, they want you to write short comedies. And if you write as David Mamet did for a long time, obscenity, obscenity-laced um, dramas about men. They want they want you to continue to do that, and so uh, I have I have avoided any single path, and so I I am always happy to strike out. I I I uh, I do hope I'm on a on some new road, and what it is, 
maybe Walter Bobby can tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just have to stay tuned and see the, see the direction that David Ives takes, new or otherwise, in the future. David, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Thanks, David. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.